0: It's week 39 of 2018, and today on TechNATO, we've got some browser news to talk about, as well as some new announcements from YubiKey. And finally, we'll take a look at the big stories coming out of Microsoft Ignite. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to Technado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined by a man who's very upset at his touchpad right now, <laughs> Mr. Don Bazette. Don, how are you doing?
1: You know, I'm doing great. Let's let's talk about how important our views are on technology when I can't even get my magic touchpad to work. Yeah, you'll have Thank to you, use Steve Jobs.
0: You'll have to use the second touchpad that is but two inches away <laughs> from the magic it's, touchpad that isn't magic, I guess.
1: This this is the sad state of my technology, just the fact that
0: uh, I, I have more than one touchpad. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be a rough show if this is how we're starting. But uh, we have a lot of news to get to. Uh, we've got a couple of, of our folks um, off-site down at Microsoft Ignite that's going on this week. So uh, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that today. we have also uh, hopefully get them here in the studio next week and, and talk with them about uh, all the the things that they learned because uh, there's been a lot of cool announcements coming out of that. So we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's get to the first story of the day, which is over on Slashdot. Uh, TechSlashDotCom or dot org, excuse me. Um, ICANN sets plan to reinforce Internet DNS security. Well, we're just starting with with the, the sexy stories. So, Don, what's what's this about? <laughs> All right, uh,
1: I did actually have a reason for bringing this article up. Uh, it is it is significant. Um, basically, eight years ago, in 2010, uh, at the root DNS level, they made a decision to start digitally signing the uh, server communications. And it was designed to help prevent some of the cache poisoning attacks and a few of the other attacks that were starting to come about back then. It's been a great system. It's worked really well. But when they issued certificates, they were very, very long-term certificates. And most people acknowledge now that it's better to be rotating keys fairly frequently. Uh, there's systems like Let's Encrypt that force you to, to basically reissue every three months. I think three months is the, the longest you can issue a Let's Encrypt certificate for. Um, so it's neat to see that uh, they're in agreement. And in the DNS domain world, they've decided that it is time to rotate the keys. It's been eight years. The keys are old enough. Uh, and they want to rotate them out. I haven't been able to find yet whether or not they're moving to stronger keys, but they are rotating the new ones. So at a minimum, if attackers have spent the last eight years trying to work out the private keys, all of their work's going to be for naught because it's all going to reset on October 11th, 2018, which is about two weeks away, right? Uh, close yeah, to three, but, but about two yeah. weeks away, uh, October 11th. Now, you might be asking yourself... What do I need to do to prepare for this amazing event that's going to occur at the root of DNS that affects the entire absolute globe? And the short answer is probably nothing. Um, if you work for a uh, a provider of one of the top level domains, if you work for you know somebody who's managing the .com or whatever, uh, like a network solutions. Yes, you have a little work there. You've got to make sure that you trust the new certificates, which you likely should anyway. So that shouldn't be too big of a deal. But for most of us that are running in the enterprise space, small, medium, large business, whatever, uh, we just trust whoever our upstream DNS provider chooses to trust. They will manage it all for us. So there's not really any action. Like for us here at the TV studios, there's literally nothing we have to do between now and October 11th. So that's cool. But it is neat to see they are starting to rotate those keys after sitting
0: eight years stagnant. Now, is there, is there any chance that this breaks the entire internet? When, oh, it could. Sure, happens? sure. Uh, it's never been done before, right? Yeah. Uh, they implemented the
1: keys eight years ago, and at the time, it was low risk because everybody could say, you know what, I'm going to configure my servers to expect the keys, but if they're not there... I'll go ahead and just flip back to unencrypted like everything was, or, you know, not even encrypted, just not digitally signed. Uh, Flip back like it was because that's how it was the day before. But now we have eight years of digitally signed communications coming out of the root servers. Uh, And if the keys flip and something goes wrong, we have to make sure that we're trusting both sets of keys. Now, they're rotating keys. They're not expiring the other ones. Uh, This particular article didn't indicate when they were actually going to kill off the previous one, but... uh, uh, but that will happen, and that's really where a problem would occur, is is if we don't trust those new keys or our upstream provider doesn't, then all of a sudden we're going to have problems using root hint servers. That, that could lead to some issues. Very doubtful, though. I, I imagine this would be a very smooth transition. Um, it's not even like Y2K. Nobody's making a made-for-TV movie about the internet dying,
0: although we should. Now that yeah. I've said that, like that— I mean, a scare tactic like that will 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 make money.
1: I wish I would have thought of that early. And you know, like, it's a little too short. I mean, we could at least get Sharknado quality uh, <laughs> done would we between call now it and October technado, 11th.
0: And, and we could get all kinds of free publicity here.
1: <laughs> That's for it. Technado? A, just stay tuned. October 11th. It's a technado. We're all potentially going to die uh, because the DNS keys are rotating.
0: There is a technado warning uh, <laughs> affecting all counties. Uh, that that will take place on October 11th. So please uh, seek shelter immediately and yeah, have a couple days worth of food and water. Absolutely. Think, and be, Load your uh, firearms. So. Definitely. Yeah, and and like <laughs> download a bunch of stuff off Netflix. So if you can't stream, you've got you know some content to watch during those couple of days before they roll it back. Absolutely. Yeah, to be able to binge watch. All right, well, I thought. You know, If Kim Kardashian can't break the internet, I don't think this is going to do it. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. Yeah. All right, well, let's switch to our next story here. This one at TechCrunch.com. Zoho pulled offline after phishing complaints, the CEO says. So Zoho, popular CRM. So, Don, is this something that they made a choice to pull it offline, or their hosting provider said, we're getting phishing complaints against your domain? So, so
1: it's kind of funny here. Uh, this is actually a really neat story. Um, not… For Zoho, obviously, (laughs) they're they're very unhappy about this. Or their customers, Um, yeah. You know, if you're not familiar with Zoho, so they're they're a company. I've I've done business with them uh, numerous times over the years. Uh, But here in the United States, they're actually not that incredibly popular, but overseas they are. Uh, Before Office 365, you had Zoho. They had an online office suite that you could log into via web page, you could write documents and do spreadsheets, and they have project management software and all these other things. So it's, it's a great product and a great platform. Uh, it's developed by a company, I believe they're based out of India, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a pretty phenomenal platform. And they were doing Office 365 stuff before Microsoft, um, although you know Microsoft kind of came in and cleaned that up, uh, and Google's G Suite also. So they all compete in the same space. Well, one of the services they sell is the ability to have email accounts, right? They can manage your whole company's infrastructure. So uh, you can sign up for a Zoho account and you can have email. Well, one of their customers, either, either the customer was sending out phishing emails or they had misconfigured somewhere and an attacker had taken over credentials to be able to relay phishing attempts. So a Zoho customer was sending those out. Now, If it was Office 365 or if it was Google's G Suite, the authorities, when notified and so on, would have obviously reached out to Microsoft or Google. But in the case of Zoho, what happened is the DNS registrar that managed the Zoho.com domain was uh, notified, and they yanked the domain, the DNS domain. So Zoho's infrastructure, their servers, their data center, all of that stuff was perfectly intact, up, and operational. But the moment the DNS domain was shut down, that's it. Your customers lose connectivity into that system, and you're dead in the water. That that's it. Like if people cannot get to your service because your end users don't know your IP address and they don't know alternate domains that you leverage and things like that, they're just you're out of luck, right? And and that's exactly what happened to them. The uh, CEO of Zoho came out and was, was very irate over this because they got no prior notification. Uh, it wasn't them that did anything. It was one of their customers, and there's a, a certain courtesy that's normally extended to them. Uh, their DNS registrar that was that was managing it, um, they had the name in here. Yeah, somewhere. it's down
0: if you go. Uh, there's a screenshot um, from Twitter. It looks like it was uh, Tierra. Oh, that's T- right. It was TierraNet. Yep, yeah. TierraNet. Uh,
1: so TierraNet, they are a, uh, a registrar that's out there. They're a smaller one. They're not not a, a bigger registrar. I mean, they're, I call them a smaller one. In the world of registrars, they can still be pretty yeah. big. Uh, but basically, they just they yanked it. And uh, it was corrected within a, a short period of time. I think the actual outage ended up being around two hours. Uh, so it's not huge, but it just showed how— um, you know, you hear a lot of people that are worried right now, oh, I don't want to deploy all my stuff in AWS because what if Amazon shuts me down? Now I've lost everything. Or there was a story with Google uh, about a month or two ago where a company had 50 developers, everything was fully deployed inside of uh, Google Compute and or Google Cloud, and somebody violated a COS and they shut the whole account down. And the whole company was unable to work for like two or three days before they finally got it all turned back on. That's a risk we use when we leverage somebody else's services. Well, in this case, they had their own servers, their own data centers. Everything was redundant, designed to be be highly scalable. And it was the DNS domain name, the registrar that snagged it. And most people don't think about your registrar. You can't make your registrar redundant. Your domain name has to be tied to one registrar and one registrar only. And that's a big weakness. And if you're going for like the cheapest bidder, when you go to buy a domain name, you can buy a domain name for $50 a year or $7 a year. And, you know, there's different levels of quality on those providers. And they do control your domain name to an extent. If they yank it for any reason, you're effectively offline. And that's exactly what happened here. So it was a a good tale. Um, What I normally like to do is tell people, hey, here's something you could have done to prevent this. But in this case... Zoho didn't do anything wrong. They, they really had designed everything right. It was the registrar not following any kind of notification process. that's a real problem.
0: Well, it's interesting, though. If you if you scroll down in the article to the um, Twitter screenshot when someone reached out to TRNet's, um support, uh, it says, I think it's a little further down at the very bottom, um, it says, Zoho was suspended after repeated contact requesting them to take action against phishing emails. So I'm wondering if that uh, notification just went to, you know, support at Zoho.com or something where they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't see it because they get millions of emails or who whichever uh, email was tied to the domain registration, which, you know, maybe that guy did not even work there anymore. Hey, shoot an email to
1: admin at Google.com yeah. and see what you get back, right? Yeah, like- saying your domain will be taken down <laughs> if you
0: don't reply to this. I mean, yes, uh, maybe they did follow, uh, you know, letter of the law, but... Uh, for something like this that that affects so many people, maybe take those extra steps and pick up the phone. In fact, I'm willing to open up a contest on this. If
1: you can send an email to any Google employee and get a response in under 24 hours, I mean, that's like we should do a t-shirt giveaway or something. (laughs) Yeah,
0: someone that you haven't met before.
1: Or or like name an employee at Google who isn't the CEO. (laughs) So we do have these bits of double standards, right, where, where people have kid gloves when they deal with these massive organizations like Facebook and Google and Microsoft um Zoho doesn't have that same clout and I think that really affected them here
0: yeah well I saw the internship and so I'm going to say uh, Owen Wilson is my oh, employee is yeah, the person that Google. works at Google I believe so <laughs> or Vince Vaughn I've got two there so well I'll, all right uh, go get my shirt out of the well, closet. Well, they, they were interns, weren't they? That is I believe account. they were hired at the end.
1: Uh, uh, well, spoiler alert. I, Thanks. You just ruined the film
0: for me. Can't say that with great certainty because <laughs> I zoned out as it was a horrible movie. Uh, all right. Our next article is over on Microsoft's blog, blog at Microsoft.com. Um, Office 2019 is now available for Windows and Mac. So, uh, any big changes in this? It, it It's not one I've heard too much about, so it can't be a <laughs> A massive change, can it? All
1: right. So this is, this is officially news, right, that uh, Office 2019 is out. And normally, in a, in a normal year, we would have a list of all these great new features to highlight and say, here's the reasons why you would upgrade to Office 2019. But this world has changed. I know we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode uh, when some of the betas were coming out. But Office 2019 is not a real increment of Microsoft Office. So what's happened is Microsoft has, has basically pivoted on the way that Office is distributed. And instead of having these, um, what are called uh, persistent copies, where a persistent license, where you buy a license and you own that license forever, now they've switched to the Office 365 model, where you pay a monthly or annual fee and you get access to Office. And as updates come out, you just get the updates. Well, it used to be that you'd have these big year versions there was office 20 uh, 2003 office 2007 office 2013 office xp I, I don't remember the order uh, but well I mean the numbers I guess were in order but you know you have these I can different... I can make a guess that's <laughs> <laughs> the order so you have these different years and 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 you knew it was better I knew office 2016 was the best because the previous one was office 2013 or something right that was how it worked well now because of office 365's rolling release they they just push updates out to it. And Office 2016, uh, via Office 365, is constantly being updated with new features. And so what happened is about three months ago, they took a snapshot of the Microsoft Office that's deployed from Office 365, and they said, that snapshot, we're going to call that Office 2019. And we're going to sell that to people who aren't using Office 365. And that's exactly what they're doing. This is a three-month-old snapshot, feature-wise, of what's Office in the cloud. Now, if you're an Office 365 subscriber, like, like we are, uh, you already have a newer version of Office than this. Like, it doesn't even have all the features that you have in your current version. So there's zero reason to upgrade. The only people this is really targeted for are people who have persistent licenses. So if you're not using Office 365, you bought Office 2016 or Office 2013, you bought it outright, and you know, you pay, and you own it the rest of your life right well if you want to step up to the newer features that are already available in Office 365 Office 2019 is what does it now there's not really a whole lot of big shining new features in there that make you excited there's like better integration with SharePoint which I think I've made known I uh, absolutely hate uh and there's some other things that have been integrated in the the better templates uh and the way that it integrates with Office to find those Uh, PowerPoint's auto-formatting features have been improved pretty vastly. So there's a lot of really cool things that are in there that most of us have already had for months and months and months that this would be new to you if you were still running Office 2013. Uh, But if you're running Office 365, they actually tell you, don't install Office 2019 because you've already got something newer. So it's it's a different world now. We can't necessarily trust the version numbers that are attached to things.
0: I love that the very first paragraph too ends with an asterisk. Uh, In this case, it's saying that uh, Project 2019, Visio 2019, Access, and Publisher are all available for Windows only. So, Office 2019 customers will have access to OneNote.
1: Well, uh, (laughs) I think uh, in the case of Project and Visio and Publisher, I don't think they've ever been available on the Mac. Yeah. So I don't think that's changed. Um, but Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, those, those they've, they've done a good job with on both sides. And, and I'll tell you, you know, a few years ago when they released Outlook for Mac and replaced Entourage, that was a big deal because Entourage totally stunk. And, and Outlook, uh, did a pretty decent job.
0: Um, although I, I don't use either of them right now. So, uh, you know, take that for what it's worth. Well, I, I think, uh, did this come out of Ignite? Is this when they announced it at the keynote?
1: Yes, yeah, so we all knew okay. it was coming. It wasn't like a secret, but yeah. they, it was an official announcement
0: at Microsoft
1: Ignite that's going on right now. The, or is it wrapping it, up yeah, today? Yeah, it
0: wraps up. To, well, it actually wraps up tomorrow. The um, We have a booth in the expo hall there, and that ends today, but the uh, the sessions go into tomorrow.
1: Yep, so Microsoft has been uh, announcing all sorts of crazy things, and, and everybody knew this one was coming because of the, like Microsoft wanted to avoid confusion with
0: Office 365. So they were making announcements early. And and so everybody kind of knew this one was coming up. Sounds good. Well, speaking of which, uh, let's go ahead and get to some of those announcements. And like I I mentioned before, uh, since we have people there, we're going to go ahead and bring them in next week and and talk a little bit more in detail about some of those things. But basically here, TechCrunch has has given us uh, seven articles in one. So we've got the most are the seven most important announcements from Microsoft Ignite. Now um, this was uh, I think all based around the first day and that's you know when they kind of make the big announcements and then other smaller things might roll out on, on different keynotes uh, as things. Uh, move along there. But, but let's go through these kind of one by one and and see what's interesting. So uh, number one here, Microsoft SAP and Adobe take on Salesforce with their new open data initiative for customer data. So basically they're they're teaming up and, and agreeing to to share some some resources.
1: Yeah, you know, if you talk to people that use Salesforce, they'll always tell you one of the best features of Salesforce is how it can integrate, Salesforce integrations. You know, There's a whole published uh, SDK and API that you can interact with it, and you can use your customer data to do all sorts of amazing things. Well, companies like SAP in the past have done this through a very convoluted, semi-secret manner where you really had to leverage consultants to be able to come in and write integrations for you, so it was very expensive and costly. Uh, Microsoft, SAP, and Adobe, though, are teaming up, to try and come up with a easy, unified interface to be able to access some of that customer data in all three places. Now, Microsoft, uh, they make CRM, uh, so they have the you know, well, it's Microsoft CRM is what it's called, uh, which is a direct competitor to Salesforce, and Microsoft CRM has been around for years and years. Uh, actually, it's been around for decades, so Salesforce is kind of the young kid on the block compared to Microsoft, but Salesforce is dominating. I mean, it's not even a, it's a total slaughter fest for new companies that are deploying CRM. uh, They're going to Salesforce in droves. Uh, SAP has been operating the space for decades. They've also seen market share starting to slip because of services like Salesforce that are so easy to implement. Now, I am confused about where Adobe fits into all of this Mm -hmm. mix because Adobe makes a wide range of software, um, but it's almost all like, applications for creativity stuff uh you know i I don't really see where their integration is on this but hey they're a part of it and uh they're going to compete with salesforce somehow
0: well if they have a a CRM, maybe it's so bad that we haven't even heard about it (laughs) yet and that's why they need to to get on on the board it's all
1: driven by a a flash-based user interface (laughs) and you have to install adobe
0: air it was macromedia's (laughs) old one when they acquired them and uh yeah that's that's a lot of money on stage with those three uh CEOs uh, right there together so yeah uh, so that was a big announcement day one Uh, number two and this is something Microsoft's been saying for a long time but uh, Microsoft wants to do away with passwords and uh, what was announced here it says businesses that use uh, the Azure Active Directory will now be able to use Microsoft Authenticator app on iOS and Android in place of passwords to log into their business applications so you'll pull out your phone as a a kind of a, a second factor when you're logging in on your desktop? Well,
1: you know, we touched on this one a few weeks ago when Microsoft Edge rolled out this feature. Microsoft Edge was the first web browser to roll out the ability to take a FIDO 2 key or, or some kind of secondary authentication and you plug it in your computer or, or the Windows Hello that takes a picture of your face or your phone's code or whatever and pass that through to a website that you were visiting, making it where you could log in and it would trust that you were already authenticated, effectively not having to use a password. And that's been that big push, like let's get rid of passwords. Why fuss with these when you have other ways to authenticate? And the big thing that slowed that down are are web applications. So many things have moved to web applications. So it's not like you've got a program right on your computer locally that can trust you. You've got to convince some server that is thousands of miles away controlled by a completely separate company to trust that you are who you say you are. So they're integrating that. It's already integrated into the operating system. It's already integrated into the web browser. Now they're starting to push it into more places. Uh, And so it's neat to see that really picking up. Tying it in with Microsoft Azure, makes it easier to to handle your regular corporate directory that may be moving into that cloud space uh, and to be able to authenticate with some kind of local authentication. So really cool to see that stuff. Um, the iOS and Android authenticators have all been evolved uh, quite a bit. Uh, so people use those, but we also see the, the physical keys getting used as well.
0: Yeah, I know we've got a couple more uh, stories about those physical keys in a second, but let's uh, keep running down this list. Uh, number three, Microsoft's new virtual desktop lets you run Windows 10 in the cloud. So I know I learned a lot recently when uh, Ronnie did that webinar about desktop as a service. Is, is that essentially what we're talking about here? Yeah, you know, uh,
1: There were some articles a few weeks ago where people were saying that Microsoft is going to start charging a monthly fee for Windows 10, right? Well, this is actually what they were talking about is where they host your Windows desktop at Microsoft. And on a positive side, you don't have to worry about updates. They handle that for you. You don't have to worry about backups and restores. They handle that for you. Uh, And you can go to any computer in the world and pull up your desktop with your applications and your documents all right there, secure, encrypted and safe. On a negative side, you don't have control of that underlying infrastructure, so you have to trust that Microsoft is keeping your data private. And if you lose your internet connection, kind of hard to pull up your desktop, isn't it, right? So you become dependent on an internet connection. Now, that used to be a big deal years ago, but in today's world, having an internet connection is a pretty standard thing. Um, And and if like our connection goes down, like we had this happen a few weeks ago where we had uh, a power outage here, and so our, our internet connection was down, and we just had employees go home. Because they could go home and, and connect right up and access systems. Uh, you know, As long as you get an internet connection anywhere, you'd be able to pull up your desktop. So it's neat. We'll see where that goes. There have been some video game services that have been doing this, uh, where the video games are run on a server and then stream down to you. Uh, they're saying the next Microsoft Xbox will be like that, all leveraging the same basic technology. So this is, a, this is an area that's adapting really fast, and I expect over the next year we're going to see some really
0: cool advancements. And that lets you kind of tone back the hardware that you need at your end too, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, if you had a Chromebook or something like that, you, you just need effectively a dummy terminal, something capable yeah. of rendering a screen, uh, so your your client becomes this low-cost thing that you don't, you wouldn't even fix it if it breaks, you just throw it away and buy a new
0: one. Like It becomes a, a low-cost commodity item. And sorry not to harp on this one, but in a situation like this, are, are you kind of thinking, like I'm, I'm always thinking about when you go on an airplane, does it uh, kind of save where you're at at that point and let you still do things and then sync back up once you get back to uh, an internet connection? Or? So it,
1: it depends. It depends on how they actually implement this. And I haven't had a chance to sit down and look at their infrastructure. I know with VMware, when they started doing their VDI, the virtual desktop infrastructure, they made it, uh, and actually Citrix did this with their Zen as well, where you could cache your virtual machine offline. Okay. So you now you had access to your whole virtual machine while you were offline, and you could run, and, and then it would sync back up when you got back to a network. From what I've seen of this, though, it seems more like a remote desktop connection where you're not synchronizing offline. So you get on a plane and you wouldn't have access to your desktop unless you had an internet connection that could reliably do that. Now, I'll tell you, as far as remote screen sharing, RDP is one of the most efficient protocols around, so it would probably work fine. Uh, I know I've used RDP on airplanes before, uh, but that whole transition of moving from one wireless network to another, you'd be constantly disconnecting and reconnecting, mm-hmm. uh, like when you're getting onto the plane or getting off the plane. Uh, that might be a little disruptive, but, well, I guess they make you close your laptop during takeoff and landing anyway, <laughs> yeah. so not really a problem.
0: Interesting. All right, well, that'll be cool to, to see, and and that could definitely be something that that makes things easier for a lot of people moving forward. Uh, number four, Microsoft Office gets smarter. I know we just talked about some Office stuff, and, and this probably is most of that, but, AI, Don. You've got to have AI. They've they've put AI (laughs) into Office. So uh, PowerPoint can now suggest a layout for your presentation.
1: Yeah, so um, they've actually had some of these features. If you use Office 365, you've already seen some of these features. I know I've used the PowerPoint one myself a number of times where um, when you paste in a picture, It then gives you eight different suggestions over how to arrange the picture on the slide. Maybe stick a drop shadow on it, maybe center it, maybe stretch it to fill like it suggests that stuff. Um, they also, I don't know if TechCrunch calls it out in another point, uh, but they've started to integrate the Cortana and Bing search, uh, which are, you know, as valuable as they sound. Um, but they've made it where when you want to go and insert data into a slide, you can search and it'll search through all of your OneDrive documents to try and find that data to bring in. So it helps to tie all the different products together and make it easier to render, um, For most of us in the IT tech sysadmin world, we don't really care about that at all. But if you're an office end user, it'll save you some time. And it's uh,
0: another demonstration of our machine learning AI-assisted future, I guess. Well, hopefully, the AI learns very quickly that I will always use a star wipe to transition between my slides. Got to have a star wipe. That's the most important. All right, number five Microsoft's massive Surface Hub 2 whiteboards will launch in Q2 2019. And this might be a confusing one for those that don't remember, but the Surface, before it was a laptop or a, a tablet, um, it was a massive table yeah (laughs) we actually had one in my old company that was uh, fun to play with because we we did some development for them until one of uh, our employees sat on it but um (laughs) that's neither here nor there you can't do that now because apparently it's going on the wall so uh they've used the same name as as their laptop but they're calling this the surface hub so um essentially this is that that same device just the new version of it right
1: yeah and you know People have gotten used to touch screens now. Uh, this one is really neat because in the, the demo they show, they've actually linked four screens together instead of trying to get one big one. Because they, they had that 85 inch screen yeah. and it was, I don't know, it was like $20,000 or something. It was really expensive. Uh, here, the smaller screens, so that brings the price down a little bit. Uh, I will say that they announced that the smaller version will avail- be available in quarter two of 2019. Uh, But the larger version won't be available until 2020. And Microsoft's track record of releasing products they announced over a year in advance is pretty (laughs) poor. So I doubt we'll ever see that large one. Uh, The smaller one, though, they are going to release. We'll we'll see where it ends up. Um, It's neat. Uh, When you give a presentation on a whiteboard versus giving a presentation on one of these uh, screens, they're pretty fancy. But at the end of the day, uh, a lot of people are just fine with whiteboards. I don't know. It, you know, it, you add a lot of complexity into just doing simple diagramming. But if you if you use Microsoft OneNote, it's so easy to capture everything that's going on on these boards and put it together and have a way where you can retain it, search it, run OCR on it to get text out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you
0: know, it, it does make. Does make meetings a little more pleasant. Yeah, and this next one's I think one we've talked about in the past too. There might be something new to it, but um, Microsoft Teams having the ability to basically, uh, you know, create full transcripts of your meetings. It's a, a Slack competitor, and um, I know it, uh, it's cool because they showed off some translation, real-time translation. So if you're in a meeting and you've got someone in Tokyo. They're able to speak and you see what they're saying. Uh, show up in, in the transcript in real time and back in English to you. So, um, so that's pretty cool. Um, not sure if there's anything really new out of that. Uh, and then number seven, Microsoft launches Azure Digital Twins. So, uh, Don, this one's a little lost on me, so I'm going to leave it to you here. All right, so one of the challenges we have with
1: IoT development is that, uh, well, first off, it's wildly insecure. (laughs) That's one problem. But but another problem is it's very hard to set up a staging and a production environment and and model out what it's going to be like when your IoT devices are rolled out in the real world. When it's something that's run on like an x86 architecture, it's real easy to spin up virtual machines and do load testing and you can launch a thousand of them or whatever. But most hypervisors out there won't let you virtualize an ARM processor. And so it's hard to say like, if I write this application and it's designed to run on a Raspberry Pi, what's it going to look like if I have a thousand of these things? And now how, how do I get that modeled up and, and run my test? Well, you really can't. And most people are having to kind of guess at it or, or try and forecast what that traffic's going to be like. Well, in Microsoft Azure, they've rolled out a collection of new services to help with that. Uh, and They call it Azure Digital Twins. And what it basically lets you do is take an IoT deployment, you know, some kind of web-based or cloud-based uh, uh, service application where you've got IoT clients that are connecting back to a server application and you can model that inside of Azure to see what the traffic and performance is going to be like, uh, how errors are being handled and so on, and be able to model that in a world where we don't really have a way to model that stuff right now. Fortunately, for, for most companies, they just look at it and they say, look, IoT is cheap. We'll just buy a bunch of our devices or, or you know, build a bunch of prototypes. But this would save even that step which is really important in the early stages of an IoT development process where you might change your design significantly from day to day or week to week, and you don't want to have to necessarily rebuild a bunch of PCBs for that, uh, that you could jump in
0: uh, and model things virtually here. All right, so Digital Twins is not a digital version of the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito movie. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, yeah, I mean, can you really
0: make that classic any better? That's just Yeah, I didn't know if George Lucas was gonna get involved (laughs) and Photoshop out all the guns and the walkie talkies. Put some (laughs) Jar Jar Binks on there. Uh, All right, well, uh, a lot of cool news out of uh, this event. And like I said, we'll have more coming next week uh, because this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as what was announced at Ignite. And we'll dig a lot deeper into a lot of the different sessions that went on. Uh, Well, we mentioned uh, kind of devices to replace passwords recently, so we've got a couple articles actually about that from this week. Uh, This first one over on Engadget, uh, YubiKey 5's FIDO2 support will help you ditch passwords entirely. I, I feel like I've read that headline a million times with just put in product name will help you ditch passwords entirely. So uh, but this is YubiKey. This is something we've uh, talked a lot about. I know something sure. you're a big supporter of. So um, YubiKey 5 uh, is, is the latest and greatest. So what, what's different?
1: Right. So, uh, you know, I like YubiKey. I use them myself. I, I have a YubiKey Neo uh, that I use all the time. Uh, with the YubiKeys up until today, or up until version 5, they have been part of the FIDO Alliance, and they are U2F compliant. But all of this new stuff, I mentioned earlier, like Microsoft Edge, the browser will allow you to pass through credentials from your your client up to a website and authenticate. Um, That functionality is actually part of the FIDO 2 specification. And the new YubiKey 5 is FIDO 2 compatible. So while I already have a YubiKey Neo or YubiKey 4 or whatever you happen to have, um, unfortunately, it's not able to be made compatible with what the FIDO 2 specifications are. So YubiKey has announced they're they're now available for sale. You can jump over to their website and purchase the YubiKey 5 or you can buy them from Amazon or or wherever. Uh, They have updated all of the models. So they show the the Neo, like I use on the left, uh, and then their USB-C model as well as their micro models to be able to go in. Uh, these are the ones that go in your your uh, USB port and effectively disappear. They just stay there. Yeah, they're yeah. they're small enough that uh, uh, you just leave them in there all the time. Uh, but they do have the older style USB, what was that USB Type B connector or whatever it's called? Yeah. Uh, and the newer USB-C uh, type connector, which is important for those of you who have upgraded to the newer Macs that only have USB-C. Um, you know, that's the way you go. You do still have to tap them to activate the key. Even the small ones, you'll see where it's got exposed metal on the end that you tap. Uh, it's a capacitive type thing to, to detect your finger tap and send your authentication.
0: Now, taking those little ones and just putting it in and leaving it in, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? Or...
1: You know, it, it doesn't. It, it sounds like it does, right? Because yeah. we, we always say, like, this is part of security saying it has to be something I have, right? Well, all right. If I have a, a key, right? So here's, ah, here's my key, right? It's on my belt. So if I walk away, I've got it. And and I, if somebody steals my laptop, I don't worry about them having my key, right? If somebody steals my laptop and the key is inserted in it, though, they've got the key. Now, do they have my password? No, that's yeah. the other piece, right? So you have to have the password and the key. But also, most people aren't worried about their laptop being stolen. Most people are worried more about an attacker on the internet using your credentials, right? Now, an attacker on the internet is not going to have your password, hopefully. But let's say they do. Let's say some website has been breached and they got your password. They're not going to have your key. And the fact that it's securely inserted in your laptop or in your desktop sitting at home isn't going to make any difference because they don't have access to that. They're online. They're using other computers, other phones, whatever, to attack you. So these type of things are not, it's not insecure. It's just protecting from something different. Mm-hmm. If you're just worried about a remote attacker exploiting your credentials, then you can get one of the small keys, pop it in, and then that's that. You don't have to worry about it, right? But if you're like me, I move around between so many different computers that I would need to constantly remember to remove that key and take it to other systems, or I would need to get more than one of those keys and put one of them in each of my computers so that I knew those are now my trusted computers, that I wouldn't be able to log in on any computer except for those. That's where I kind of like having the one that's on my little uh, ID badge because I can, I just always have it with me. No matter which computer I sit down, I can plug it in. So they're each just kind of built for a different scenario.
0: All right, very cool. And, and like I said, we've got more YubiKey news. Uh, this one now over at AWS. Uh, this is on their blog. Um, use YubiKey security key to sign into AWS Management Console with YubiKey for multi-factor authentication. So um, this is just basically uh, baking that in. To to their system now, right?
1: Yep, and it's kind of frustrating because I just filmed some Amazon content <laughs> two weeks ago showing how to do multi-factor authentication with Amazon, and we had to use the Google Authenticator or Authy to do where your cell phone generates the code. They uh, they supported keys from Jamalto, uh, which is a company that is not is not exactly a household name for authentication like YubiKey is, uh, but that was it. Like those are the two options that you had, and and that was that. Well. Now they've said with the YubiKey 5 coming out that they support it, uh, they want to do it, and it's U2F, so that means they actually support the previous YubiKeys as well, not just the YubiKey 5. So I'm not exactly sure why they timed it with UB YubiKey 5 com- coming out. Maybe it was just coincidental, I don't know. But if you're an AWS user, you can now use a YubiKey for authenticating with IAM. So definitely,
0: uh, uh, definitely jump in there and do that. I know I've got to switch my account over when I have a minute. Yeah, and if you could go ahead and, and do that in studio, so we have that uh, for the AWS ReInvent trade show we're going to later this year. That that's be a good point. Yeah, that's coming up in November. <laughs> so please uh, <laughs> do that on camera. Uh, all right, now let's shift gears. We've got uh, a couple of browser stories uh, to talk about. Uh, first one over on the Mozilla blo- uh, blog. Excuse me, uh, introducing Firefox Monitor, helping people take control of uh, after a data breach. So. How was a yeah. browser doing that? So
1: uh, this was um, this was announced a few months ago. Mozilla indicated they were going to do this, this thing. Uh, and I thought it was kind of funny, and I really didn't think they were going to do it. And a few months went by, and we didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, they released it. So now they have released what's called Firefox Monitor. Uh, it is a service that's integrated into the Firefox browser. Where basically at Mozilla, they are monitoring these stolen databases of user credentials, right? Uh, you know, when, when these databases, like when uh, uh, when Yahoo was compromised, all those millions of accounts or Equifax or whatever, they have this list of all the email accounts or email addresses of their customers that were compromised. And Firefox is now watching that list and running your user identities against it. And if you turn up on one of their new lists, it will notify you. So the browser is working to help notify you if you've been included in a breach. Now, according to GDPR, if you've been involved in a breach, you're supposed to be notified within three days anyway. So the Firefox browser is probably not really helping anybody in a meaningful way, but it is a good gesture. Um, It does seem odd to be coming from your web browser, but... Most people are using the web these days, so uh, that's what they've chosen to do. It does uh, serve as a little reminder that Mozilla is a lot more than just a web browser, right? Uh, They are a not-for-profit organization that makes a whole collection of tools and and utilities that people will take advantage of. Uh, The Apache web server is actually a part, well, like an indirect part of the Mozilla organization. So you 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 see a lot of stuff flowing through them, uh, and this is just one more step to try and help notify people, create that awareness and say hey, you've got credentials, we happen to notice that those are actually included
0: in this breach data, you should consider changing that password. Yeah, I was going to say, does it, does it give you some feedback then of what to do about it? Because otherwise, I'd just see, hey, by the way, your stuff's been stolen. Have a good day. Yeah. En- well, enjoy the congratulations. Yeah. yeah,
1: Join the ranks of everyone else. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is it on the dark web, too? Is that where it's looking? It probably is. Oh, well, it's exciting. You know, there's this huge debate over that, that
1: if you just rely on the legitimate data, right, If I go to Yahoo and I say, can you give me a list of all the people who are in that compromise? (laughs) They're not going to give it to me because that would be another compromise, right? And so they don't do it. Uh, So you almost have to go on the dark web and either steal the data or pay for it. And a lot of people have been talking about that because if they're paying for the data, then all of a sudden they're supporting supporting it. Yeah, yeah, they're funding this. So it's it's a slippery slope. Uh, I have not seen exactly where they're pulling their data from, uh, so it may just be public sources. I did see one article that said it was all built around the Have I Been Pwned website. Uh, that Have I Been Pwned, you know, they, they use the the uh, free databases that they find on the dark web, so it is stolen material, yeah. uh, and then you can search against it. They do have an API, which uh, Mozilla is certainly tapping into. I don't know if that's the only source they're pulling
0: from, uh, but that is one place that they are getting data from. All right, very fun. Uh, our next browser uh, story, a little less uh, popular of a browser, but Vivaldi uh, 2.0. They're only on 2.0 now. Uh, your browser <laughs> matters. So uh, we can update, and oh, they've got uh, resizable tabs, uh, sync, floating web panels. It's so exciting. Vivaldi, if you're not
1: familiar with it, I, I think we, we announced when Vivaldi 1 came out, it would have been last year, um, one of the co founders of Opera who makes the Opera web browser, Uh, they had changed some ownership and investors, and he didn't like the direction that the the company was moving in. So he left the company and created his own web browser called Vivaldi. And in the initial version, I liked it uh, because it was very memory efficient, uh, unlike Chrome, which is a memory hog. Uh, and it didn't like get in your way with a lot of crazy stuff. So I I like that it gave me that flexibility, uh, but it was missing some key features. And the number one feature for me that was missing that stopped me using it for any regular basis was bookmark sync. Like I have become so dependent on having my bookmarks synchronized between my computers. I have my desktop at home, my laptop here and my tablet. And if my bookmarks don't synchronize between those things, it really messes with my workflow and makes my life more difficult. So, um, so they did introduce that f- support as well as other things. I'm actually running Vivaldi right here. This is this is 2.0 uh, that I'm running, uh, and it just lets you do a lot of neat things. Um, they've also embraced theming in this one, so you can change the theme. There's a lot of people who are big on the, the I was dark, say mode. dark mode. We oh have, dark yeah. mode. Oh, yeah. it's great. And you know, uh, one thing I had fun with. Google rolled out a slightly controversial feature. Uh, did you notice that Chrome? You use Chrome, right? I do. Chrome took a big update this week. And did you see how your UI changed? I did, yeah. Yeah, All these rounded edges and stuff like that. Well, in Vivaldi, here, let me see if I can... I'm going off script here. Let me see if I can do this (laughs) real quick. Um, In Vivaldi, if you dig into your preferences, you can actually turn that round stuff on just like like in Chrome. So if I want to really pretend like I'm in Google land, let me just crank that up. There we go. And now I've got my nice little... Curved edges, so exciting, uh, and curved tabs and stuff. So the fact that Vivaldi gives you that power to be able to get in and customize things and not have to, I don't have to be a developer to do it. That's what that browser is all about. So I see it becoming um, a bit of a like a like a power user's browser, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's it's fun. Definitely check it out if you're bored and have a minute. You know, it never hurts to look at other web browsers. A lot of people have said that uh, Firefox for a long time was just giving up under the the overwhelming force of Chrome. But Microsoft's been making a big push with Edge. Firefox has made big advancements this year. You've got Vivaldi creeping up on the back. I think the browser wars are really starting to heat up, and the flexibility of moving between the browsers is actually pretty nice. So definitely check them out. It's a lot of fun.
0: I'm happy with IE6, and I don't see any reason <laughs> to change. I'm not going to do it now. IE6. Yeah. I don't know if that would even run on no. this. anymore. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, that is pretty much going to do it for TechNado today. Uh, I did want to let you know of a couple things. We do have some webinars coming up. Uh, if you want to go ahead and take a look over at itpro.tv slash webinars, they're not up there as of recording, uh, but they will be up there very soon, probably next week, where you can register for them. They'll be taking place in October. We've got uh, the top five pen testing tools will be one that we have there, as well as uh, one with Don where we're going to be exploring the dark web uh and specifically looking at you know why you would want to be on there and how you can find out if your information um is out there and and look around at all that so uh, that'll be a a really fun one i think we're gonna put that around halloween so we can uh have, have some real fun with that but all the webinars we've done in the past live up on this uh page so you can check out any of them the top five uh devops blunders one we did just last week and the um, desktop as a service as we talked about earlier um, a little introduction there from ronnie wong so a lot of great ones that uh you can take a look at at itpro.tv slash webinars and also if you want to find out more information about itpro.tv in general uh check out go.itpro.tv slash technado we got a 30 percent off coupon code there uh for the lifetime of your membership so you can uh, get a great deal and, and check out all the great content from IT Pro TV and uh, information for teams there as well if you're looking for team pricing and our brand new pro portal uh, that's been updated recently so you can uh, assign courses and track progress and do all those things uh, that you want to do to uh, make sure your team is staying up to date on the latest and greatest that's out there well that's gonna do it for us today Don any closing thoughts uh, no I'm gonna spend the rest of my day reading
1: the tech support pages on the Apple magic touchpad part two, which is not so
0: magic. Okay, sounds good. I'm going to be putting uh, all of my email addresses into uh, did I get pwned and uh, and see what comes up and then probably go and change all my passwords. And just cry yourself to sleep. Yeah, just cry <laughs> myself to sleep. I can't wait to learn how to get on that dark web. Uh, we'll find that out uh, soon enough. But thanks so much for watching Tech today and we'll see you next week.